Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, how are you doing? We're halfway up the mountain now. I wonder if you're reeling just a little bit. I wonder if you're taking all of this completely in stride. No matter what, I'm glad you're here. But I gotta ask, why are you here? For that matter, why am I here? I think it's because I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be afraid of the Darknet, or the forums that exist on them, or the cybercriminal underground. I don't want to stay in the dark about how law enforcement handles these investigations either. I want to understand all of it. I'm hoping you're here for the same reasons. I mean, yeah, these are big geopolitical forces at play, but in the end, the force wielders are just people. These non-government actors engaging in illicit activity. Ransomware operators. That's a very complex world of... International law. Crypto. Laundered. Money. Funds transfers. Privacy and anonymity. We've observed more and more threat actors. The major players behind the darknet markets. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. This is Politicotech. Nearly half of all cyber attacks in 2022 targeted the United States. The number has actually dropped from last year. Out of 195 countries in the world, ain't it fun to live in the one that's needing to up its game against global cybercriminal threats? Thing is, it's hard to punch at shadows. Meet Josh Lospinozo. I'll get it started here. He's the co-founder and CEO of Shift5 a defense technology company that provides the data and cybersecurity platform for planes, trains, and tanks. We're deployed on uh, military weapon systems around the world, monitoring and um, collecting threat data, uh, looking for active attacks into these critical systems. Previously, Josh spent a decade as a cyber officer, building elite hacking tools for NSA's tailored access operations, Army Cyber Command, and the Cyber National Mission Force. Everyone's on edge. You know, they're waiting for something. National security interests and cybersecurity interests are more intertwined now than I remember them being in at least my recent memory. And I want to know why that is, right? So let's sort of temporally ground ourselves again. How has the war in Ukraine shifted the dynamics and motivations of foreign cyber criminal collectives? It's a great question. I think it is it is an uh, you know sort of punctu- punctuated event uh, that brings to light something that's been simmering underneath the surface for years now. Um, so operational technology and critical infrastructure is the next frontier in this battleground. We've seen. A pattern of events like Stuxnet, which, you know, really surprised folks that, you know, with code, you could have physical effects on something of great geopolitical importance. Uh, We saw the Ukraine power grid attacks in 2017 in the lead up to the uh, Crimea invasion. We've seen 
effects on civilian life in the United States over the past few years. You know, Colonial Pipeline created a hysteria around gasoline where I couldn't pump gas here in, in Virginia for a few days. And then, of course, in my military experience, we don't talk about this very much in the public, but, you know, just read that GAO report from 2018 and you, you realize just how seriously folks are in the national security space are taking these issues. Just look at some of the programs that the government is initiating. Uh, CISA, for example, Jen Easterly, who's a former boss of mine from the military, uh, who, who leads CISA now, um, and the Transportation Security Administration have been very focused on critical infrastructure. In fact, there are these cybersecurity directives going around for things like rail and aviation and pipelines and maritime. So the government is very clued into this threat. And well, there's good reason. And we saw it in, in Ukraine. A couple of uh, data points on things coming out of the Kremlin. First, we saw significant activity in electronic warfare. The idea there is it's, it's close to cyber, but it's maybe one layer down. Um, the idea is that you can do things like jam radio frequency signals so that military units and uh, civilians can't use GPS. Uh, or you affect communications infrastructure on the RF spectrum so that people can't use their cell phones, they can't communicate with each other. And the idea is that from a military context, that is a debilitating thing to do to an adversary. Uh, one of the things that we found profoundly interesting was Starlink and the gradient between commercial and military sort of blurring even more. So you had a commercial entity putting satellites up and making Starlink terminals available to Ukrainians in a context where that commercial entity had never designed those things for military uses. And Russia had an intense interest in those satellites and started uh, campaigns against those, some of which were effective. So very, very interesting space. What we know from the Government Accountability Office report is that almost as a rule, these systems are profoundly vulnerable once you pierce the veil of obscurity and, and find access vectors into them. August 1st, Lockheed Martin, supposedly targeted with a DDoS attack by the pro-Russian hacker group Killnet. I remember it took about two weeks for Killnet to release some sort of proof that they'd entered employee databases for people who are working on the HIMARS missiles, except in that case, I believe that wasn't an actual DDoS attack. They weren't able to prove that they'd actually gotten into any of Lockheed Martin's systems. But for those two weeks, there was this like sense of, well, what if they had, you know? And I wanted to ask you, what's the real threat? What's hyped up fear, you know? And what's the real threat of, of a Russian a cyber criminal operative like getting into a defense contractor's employee database? Well, it's a very real threat. The important context here is that these are campaigns. These aren't isolated incidents. And so to affect operational technology or critical infrastructure, it typically requires some bespoke knowledge about that system. And so what we see is this, call it public-private partnership of cyber criminals and nation-state actors conducting these campaigns where you'll see these non-government actors doing foreign intelligence, what we would call foreign intelligence. They're looking to collect technical data. Uh, we've seen this time and time again, various fighter platforms we've caught you know, foreign actors stealing technical data about these weapon systems or plans and uh, infrastructure documenting operational technology. 
And the idea there is, uh, well, there's plausible deniability, right? If Russian crimeware gang gets caught in these networks, it's a, well, that has nothing to do with us. You know, this sort of um, foreign surveillance apparatus of China or Russia or Iran or whoever. If you can't prosecute, is it really a crime? Yes, it is. That's yeah, that's right. And, um, and yeah, for the record, yes. Yes, for the record, yes. Uh, I'm not an attorney, but and this is not legal advice, but um, uh, but this is um, generally how you'll see these things proceed. So there's a sort of uh, surveillance aspect to it. There's a foreign intelligence collection And then you sort of take that data back and then you plan the next phases of your operation. There was a point you mentioned that I, that I want to drive in a little bit on. And that's the notion of cyber criminal collectives transforming into nation state actors. And this is especially true of Russian cyber collectives. And let's, let's maybe start there. How do the operational tactics of Russian cyber collectives differ from other foreign cyber collectives, say the Chinese? In Russia in particular, and I think they really are pioneers in this business model, if you will, Russian cyber criminals are motivated by profit, right? These are private citizens that are trying to make a living in a maybe less than admirable way. And they operate in a pretty loud fashion with, if not support, at least tacit approval from the government. And the way they get that tacit approval is the government has a say in what targets are valid, what targets are not valid, uh, and ostensibly is directing some of these criminal groups towards targets that are of ge geopolitical interest for the government. So if, you're, if your role is as a foreign intelligence organization, you might exist on a network for 10 years with access. And if the target never finds out about that, That's the goal, right? You want to be on that network low and slow. No one knows you're there. You're carefully siphoning information off, creating misconfigurations so that if you do get caught, you can get back into the network, uh, that, that sort of thing. Where a cyber criminal, of course, the point is that the target finds out about you um, because, you know, their systems don't work. And you, you, you present yourself as the customer support that is going to turn their systems back on, right? And so very, very different goals. Yeah. If you've gotten to this web page, it might be because yeah. you've been hacked. That's right. <laughs> Please contact this number for assistance. That's exactly right. It's so weird. It's a super weird world we're living in. Um, it is possible to repurpose uh, ransomware in many situations to actually have meaningful you know, on the ground effects in Ukraine. I mean, you saw this in 2017 with the power grids, right? So there are ways in which, you know, these, these criminal organizations can be repurposed almost as paramilitary units to be having effects on targets of interest. From your perspective, what are sort of the technologies that allow cyber criminal collectives to function um, largely undetected? Ironically, on the operational side, The very technologies that allow for privacy and security simultaneously create tools for attackers to go undetected. And this is one of the most perverse things about uh, security in a modern enterprise or on modern information technology. So as an example, say we are part of an APT and we want to penetrate into a network. The first thing is access, of course. And while I think cybersecurity reporters love to focus on things like zero days and remotely triggerable exploits on 
Microsoft SQL servers and, you know, uh, Internet Explorer, you know, browser vulnerabilities and these sorts of things. The fact of the matter is most access goes through open channels and uh, you know, people are clicking on links that they shouldn't or they're giving up their passwords or they have bad passwords uh, or a previous compromise gave attackers a whole bunch of usernames and passwords that they can reuse to try to enter into other services. Once that legitimate looking access happens, so you just have a login from a new location or something like that, from there, it's really hard unless you are purposefully breaking uh, security and privacy to detect follow-on activities. So for example, um, one of the most important technology innovations that keeps internet traffic secure, uh, TLS, transportation layer security. So if you you know log into a website and you see the little green lock on the browser bar, uh, that's saying that end-to-end -end, uh, your traffic is encrypted. So everyone who's passing your traffic along the internet and through your network can't see what's inside of that traffic. And generally speaking, that's a good thing, right? If you want to do a banking transaction or you want to have secure communications with somebody, TLS is very important. Well, if an attacker compromises a laptop on an enterprise network and wants to communicate with command and control infrastructure to conduct follow-on activities, they're just going to use TLS, right? Because all that traffic is encrypted and it's very, very, very difficult for someone managing that network uh, to be able to detect that activity, if that makes sense. And so you can get a very, very long way as an attacker by just repurposing privacy tools and things that are meant to keep communications safe and secret, uh, but you're just using them for nefarious purposes. And it occurs to me that at least in from the Eastern European cyber threats, like the innovation there, for lack of a better word, is is really coordination, collaboration, and organization, right? Like it's the idea that these roving groups now are able to coordinate among themselves or more importantly, you know, work under similar instructions. And some of the stuff that you told me earlier makes me, it, it takes me back to something someone else said once. It's, it's that the onslaught is relentless. You hear about the ones that work, the entry points, the hacks that work. You don't see the years and years of effort that goes into this. And this is kind of where I want to bring in the darknet market stuff, because the reason we're fascinated with darknet market platforms, you know, isn't necessarily just the goods sold on them. It's their role, especially the forums, their role in organization. And we've had this point iterated to us a few times about how access brokers kind of inhabit the most open parts of the darknet forums. And from there, you go to a VIP room and then a VVIP room. In my head, it's a club and everyone there says stuff like, you know, Dosvidanya, I'm going to go to the next room. Um <laughs> That's probably not how that works, but it's probably uh, not far do off. Do you want to do you want to do you have any comments on that? Like, I do. Are you aware of? Yeah. Yeah. So so um, it's not surprising to me at all. So so two thought streams here. Um, one is, I mean, there, there are many terms for these kinds of cyber groups. Uh, advanced persistent threat is one term that uh, we've been using for a while. It turns out that just like any engineering organization, because these criminal groups are, you know, in some sense, and startups that are creating a product and putting that product out in the market, and they have revenue and they have business models. Uh, so, from some perspective, 
the same sub-organizations are required to conduct these cyber operations. You have folks that write tools. And that, that is a continuous activity because you have a cat and mouse game between antivirus and anti-ransomware vendors. And that is a difficult and bespoke skill set to be able to build these kinds of tools to evade detection, to evade preventative techniques. And so these tools are constantly evolving. Uh, sometimes they'll get caught, they get reverse engineered. The antivirus vendors will build defenses against those techniques, and then the malware engineers have to build new, new tools. So there's a product development organization out there um, in each of these uh, worlds that builds these tools. Uh, you have um, sort of the operators, the folks that are um, operating the infrastructure uh, that commands and controls these tools, and that is a totally separate skill set of maintaining servers around the world that are compromised, that you can pivot traffic through because uh, that infrastructure is constantly getting shut down. Uh, you have folks that are making sure, I mean, just like any product, they want to make sure that they have, you know, the service level agreements to be able to uh, communicate with their malware and initiate it and then also de decrypt their files um, once the, the, you know, their customers have received the service. And uh, then you have, as you mentioned, sort of the access folks um, who are, trying to get people to click on links and download backdoored versions of software and infect open source libraries so that people unwittingly bring malware into the, into the systems. And so you've got these ecosystems that uh, arise around what is fundamentally a business model, and that mirrors exactly how foreign surveillance organizations around the world have built their advanced persistent threats over the past 20 years. Next time, we're back in the political wheelhouse to discuss domestic policy, data privacy, international law enforcement coordination, privacy coin regulation, and the price of not keeping up with the cybercriminal underworld. But when it comes to, you know, making sure that you can't have another colonial pipelines, um, to making sure that terrorists don't have a, you know, wide open mechanism for the transmission of money abroad, when, it, when you look at what Silk Road was doing, you know, there's not really a partisan divide on whether any of that behavior is particularly good. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Rook Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Almond is the executive producer and head of audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And I'm Mohar Chatterjee. Thanks for listening.